Psalm 91? You're good at it. How are you out there? Good, praise God. We're going to be in Psalm 91 again tonight. We're working our way through uh, verse 14 here of the psalm. Sister Kim is going to read it to you in just a moment. And uh, then we're going to jump in and have fun with all that God tucked in here for us. So, Father, we thank you tonight for the word. We thank you for our ability to come here freely and worship you without fear. Lord God, we thank you for being part of the family of God. And I pray a blessing over the word as it goes forth tonight, Lord. Let it be forth in the power and demonstration of your spirit. And let our hearts and our minds be ready and willing to receive the engrafted word, the truth you've given to us. We ask it in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. Sister Kim, Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you, to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen. Well, this is a God's psalm of protection uh, as we're preaching through it, learning about all the divine protection from God and the angels of God that he's dispatched. Also, we've been following some of the excerpts from this book, God's Shield of Protection, Psalm 91, the military version. I got some more of that for you tonight, but we're really focusing on the last three verses here, 14, 15, and 16. They're grouped together. I'm going to talk to you about that in just a second, but 14 is all we're going to cover tonight. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. Now, the last three verses of 91 are grouped together because there's six I wills in there and seven promises from the Lord. Three verses, seven promises. There's six I wills. God says, I will do something specific. You see in there, as he, he's saying, you know, I will, I will call upon him and he will answer me and I will be with him in trouble and I will rescue him. With long life will I satisfy him. So, there's a lot of implications of what the Lord is promising here. Seven promises, you know, because he has loved me, verse 14 starts off with. Now, the, the two promises, you know, the seven promises are in here, but there's two becauses, and we're going to look at those tonight. 
just kind of trying to make sense of the text here, how it breaks down. Because we do two things, God unleashes two specific promises in verse 14. Let's look at the first because. Because he has set his love upon me. So God is saying here that when we as his children set our love upon him, now we're going to dig into this tonight and find out all the implications, but he's going to do something because we chose to love him. Do you know we live in a world that categorically rejects God and worships self over God? Do you know we live in a world that loves pleasure and loves sin and loves entertainment and loves to be pampered and loves a whole lot of things more than it loves God? And all of us were in that system in the world before the Holy Spirit wooed us out and Christ snatched us out of there to fall in love with him. Someone say amen. So verse 14 saying, you know, because he has set his love on me, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. So there's two becauses and two promises. The first because is because he loved me. Now, loving the Lord isn't something that just the super saints do. You know, uh, certain religious systems categorize certain people who do certain things as saints. The truth is, the Bible says that all of us who are in Christ, who are born again and part of the family of God, are saints. Amen? Did you know you were a saint? Turn to your neighbor and say, good evening, saint. Why are we saints? Because, you know, we do good things or we do good works or we do miracles. No, we're saints because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all unrighteousness and made us holy in the sight of God. That's why Paul talks to the whole church as saints, not just super Christians. So, you know, not just for the elite, not for the really sold out or the special standouts. You know, those are the people that really love God. It's not just for the fivefold ministries of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers. You know, pastor, you got to love God. The rest of us are just going to live life. And you tell us about God on Wednesday and Sunday. That's not the way it works, but that's a lot, of, a lot of the way people play the game, don't they? Never drawing near to God, having somebody else do it for them, and then sharing what they got. What did they do with the children of Israel sent Moses up the mountain, and they all stood back, and they shook. Wow, they were scared of God. And they wanted to know God at arm's reach, so they sent Moses up, and they said, you know, Mo, you go up there, and when you come down, you tell us what he said. See, that's Old Testament. New Testament is the veil is torn in two. All of us have access into the Holy of Holies. We're to have relationship with Father God through Jesus Christ. So all of us have to love him. All of us have to be in love with him. Amen? It's not just for a special few. Loving God is for every believer. It's actually what makes us a genuine believer. And it's the first and most important commandment. Listen to Exodus 21 through 3. God gives the first commandment to the children of Israel who were quivering at arm's reach. Moses brings it down. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me or besides me. So God reminds them, hey, I'm your God. I brought you out of bondage. I brought you out of Egypt. And you're not to have any gods before me. You're to love me. And you're to love me above all other things, all other people, above everything. God has to be our first love. So loving God is something set in the New Testament and the Old Testament. We see the Exodus 20 command. But Jesus summarizes all the commandments in Matthew 22, boiling down to us loving God first and putting him above everything else. Matthew 22, 36 through 38. 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So loving God is not, you know, it is not the icing on the cake. It's the cake. We've got to love God. Old Testament commands it. New Testament, Jesus summarizes the law. He, he says it's the greatest command. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Some, some of that is added in there, the strength idea. Jesus is summarizing uh, the fact that we need to be in love with God. Now, idols are what the enemy uses to undermine our love for God. You know, when people hear the word idols, they think of wooden statues or carved things or images or, you know, things that primitive people bow down and worship to. And we know that idols are more than that because none of us in the West do too much of that, but yet we worship things. We worship pleasure. We worship money. We worship the intellect. Look how the world worships the intellect. Ooh, we want smart people to run everything. Sometimes the smart people don't run everything so well. Sometimes it's the simple person with the right heart who has a heart to serve that does the best job, amen? Well, we want the people who have smooth speech. Sometimes the people with the smooth speech are a little too slick for their own good. Come on. I like someone who just says it plain, amen? I like talking to someone who just says the plain truth and, and what they say they mean. So uh, understand, you know, idols are something that's sneaky and tricky and they're invasive and they have a way of, uh, captivating us. You know, we could worship all kinds of things and, and very subtly that thing becomes more important to us than God. We all know it. I love to play guitar. I've been playing guitar since I'm seven years old. And I'll tell you what, guitars can become idols. Whatever you love, whatever you, you know, you like to do, you got to like it, not love it because our love is reserved for God. So think about that and apply what I'm saying to your own life and, and, and see what the thing is that wants to sneak up on you and become an idol to undermine your love for God. Now, you say, Pastor, why can't we love God and love a bunch of stuff all at the same time? And Jesus answered that question in Luke 16, 13. You think, well, sure, I love God and I love this and I love that and I love ice cream and I love and I love and I love. Well, the thing is, there can only be one love in our life that sits on the throne of our heart. So you can't love God and add a bunch of things that you love to it. And Luke 16, 13, Jesus tells us why. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And that word mammon means money. So either we serve God or we serve the things that money can buy. We serve the things that man can make, or we love God and put him on the throne of our heart. So loving God is both our solemn duty and our greatest privilege. See, I don't want you to approach this idea that we have to love God as it's like a, a lot of hard work. When you really love someone, it's easy to be around them. Anybody married here? Now you look nervous. Remember when you just fell in love and you wanted to be around that person all the time? Yeah. Isn't that sweet, Patrick? She's going to let you sleep inside tonight. <laughs> We're supposed to keep that and cultivate that. Amen. We're not supposed to lose that. But people lose it in their natural relationships and they lose it in their relationship with the Lord. At the beginning, oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Oh, he's wonderful. I love Jesus. I love the church. I even love the pastor. How long does that last? 
So love is something that, you know, we have to cultivate. He has to be the single love of our heart. It's our solemn duty, but it's also our greatest privilege. Now, loving God must be our daily focus, and here's why. Because the world is filled with so many slick idols and distractions and snares that we can't maintain our love for God in the midst of all that with the casual pursuit. See, if we're just casual about God, we're casual about church, we're casual about our calling, we're casual about reading the word, we're casual about prayer. Are you getting the feeling here? All those other things are a lot more flashy and seductive, and they have a tendency to captivate us. And then all of a sudden, we're caught up in everything else with God. Why? Because we pursued him casually. So if you're going to love God and be successful at loving God, it has to be a daily focus. It has to be the thing that we're focused on doing. Otherwise, you know, there are too many things to pull our gaze away from him. Verse 14 promises us if we love God, then we will know him as our deliverer. How many are thankful for God's delivering power in their life? Amen. How many are thankful tonight that God sets the captive free? He sets the drug addict free. He sets the prostitute free. Come on, that he sets the sinner free. God still delivers, amen. You say, well, I want to know God as deliverer. If we want to know God as deliverer, we, we have to stay in love with him. At the end of the day, it's always God who delivers his people out of their troubles. It's not our own grit. It's not our own wisdom. It's not our own hard work, although we're going to need all of that sometimes to get free. Amen? You need wisdom. You need grit. You need to be tough. You need to be disciplined. You need to be wise when you make decisions. Amen? But that's not what delivers us. In the end, it's God that delivers us out of all of these troubles that we face in life. You know, notice what God said to the Israelites in Exodus 20 when I read the first commandment. He's delivering the first commandment, which is to love him. And the first thing he does is he reminds them, I delivered you out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. He's saying, I'm your deliverer. That's why you should love me. If you can't think of any other reason to love God, it's because he delivered us from the bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. Come on, someone say amen in church. Some people get short on being thankful about stuff. And, well, I don't know, you know, what to be thankful for. I had a hard day and nothing went right. Well, at the end of the day, if nothing goes right and everything's hard and nothing goes your way, you've been delivered from sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, and you have a reason to be thankful and to be in love with him for that. God says, you got to love me. I delivered you out of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. Now, that statement there relates perfectly to New Testament Christianity. Egypt was a type of sin. It was a picture of the world. So if you study scripture and you understand the typology, Egypt is used as a symbol of sin and worldliness. Those who are in Christ are free from the power of sin. Amen. Those who are in Christ are free from the world system. We're, no, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're no longer members of the system. We're part of the kingdom of God, amen? We're part of the kingdom of heaven. If you thought that, you know, I'm just, you know, in the world here and I'm doing my thing. No, you're of a different kingdom if you belong to Jesus Christ. You're part of the family of God. You know, I feel, I feel this bouncing off a little bit. We got to understand this here. Yeah, we work and we, you know, we pay bills and we, we do what we got to do in this life, but we're just passing through here. You know, don't put roots down here. Don't get too excited about the treasures here, amen, because we, it's treasures in heaven that we should be st storing away by the way we live our lives. So we should never forget who our deliverer is. In Israel's case, 
It wasn't Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or Moses. It wasn't even the judges. We studied the entire book of Judges. Every time Israel got into trouble, into bondage, God raised up a judge. He delivered them and brought them back into relationship. But it wasn't the judges who delivered Israel. It wasn't any of the kings. It wasn't King David. It was always God himself. And we need to remember that. As Christians, we're not delivered by our denomination, a theological understanding, a pastor, an evangelist. We are delivered by God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, many people that try, well, I got saved by this person, or I got saved that, you know, and I, this pastor. And yeah, we all are laborers, but in the final analysis, God is our deliverer. Man doesn't deliver us for anything. They can point us towards the deliverer, and when he gets a hold of us, we'll find deliverance. Come on, say amen. God's got to get the glory for this stuff. Too many people trying to steal the glory. <laughs> God still delivers. And the book that we're looking at here as we're going along with Psalm 91 uh, gives some accounts from uh, a Marine commander who commanded Marines in... Uh, the little excursion we had there in Iraq and Baghdad. And here's a testimony of some of the miracle protection uh, and deliverance that God poured out upon this group of Marines here. I want to read you just a little excerpt from the book here. Um, kind of interesting, this little excerpt comes from page 91 on the book on Psalm 91. I thought that was cool. I don't get out much, so. In his book, A Table in the Presence, Lieutenant Carrie Cash tells firsthand of our military's entry into Baghdad and gives an eyewitness report of the miraculous delivering power of our God. On April 10th, 2003, the 1st Battalion, 5th Marine Regiment marched into downtown Baghdad to seize Saddam Hussein's presidential palace, only to find themselves walking right into an ambush of militants hiding in mosques, storefronts, and homes, Hundreds of troops came face-to-face -face with a blitz of rocket-propelled grenades, gunfire, and defeat looked sure as they had walked smack into the middle of an ambush. But the reports tell a different story. A rocket sliced its way directly through an armored vehicle packed with Marines, and no one was hit. One soldier after the battle had a helmet with a bullet hole in the front and a bullet hole in the back, and he had no wounds. A squad of Marines in amazement turned a corner and walked right into a, the, a group of the enemy who were going to fire at them at point-blank range, but they looked at them in terror. They dropped their weapons and ran away. I wonder if they saw an angel back there. An RPG fired from only a few yards away, unexplicably swerved in a corkscrew and missed everyone. When the smoke of the battle cleared, only one American had lost their life. The Marines could not deny God's protection, not only, not only on this day, but in the months that led up to this moment as well. For a spiritual revival in the desert of northern Kuwait, to miraculous escapes from death, to baptizing Marines in Saddam Hussein's palace, Lieutenant Cash, a chaplain with the United States Navy and a battalion chaplain for the infantry, Marines and ground combat forces to cross the open border into Iraq, recounts the remarkable events one after another. So there's more to this testimony. There's more events. If you want to grab the book and read it, I just want to tell you something, that when you belong to God and you put yourself in God's hands and you love him with all your heart, you're going to know him as deliverer. 
And these guys, you say, well, I don't believe any of that. Well, these guys believed it, and they lived it, and they were willing to put their name on it. When we love God, we'll know him as deliverer. The second because of verse 14 says this, because he has known my name. So we look at the first because, because you've loved me, you know what, then you're going to know me as deliverer. Now there's a second because, because you have known my name. God says the promise that comes as a result of knowing his name is that I will set him on high. Let's take a look at that. Why is it so important to know God's name? Knowing God's name is the first step to developing an intimate, authentic relationship with him. You know, you really can't have a deep relationship with someone if you don't even know their name, right? And I'm sure some of us pass people and see people maybe every day, and we we have like a casual connection with them. Maybe we buy coffee from them, an egg sandwich, or we see them at the gas pump, but we don't know their name. And you really can't have... Uh, an authentic relationship or an intimate relationship with someone until you know their name. And this is what he's saying, because he has known my name. Now, isn't it awkward when you know someone's face, but you forget their name? Come on, how many, how many times do you try and introduce your spouse to someone that you know, but you forget their name? And you go, this is my wife, so-and-so. And you're like, oh, I don't know what to do now. And hopefully Kim goes, hi, my name is Kim. What was your name? He saves me. Remember that? But it's so awkward to know someone's face or know something about them or have contact with them and then to forget their name. Uh, God wants us to know his name. Now, God has revealed his name to us. God revealed himself to the children of Israel in Egypt through Moses. Moses asked God point blank. Moses is getting prepped. God is going to send him into Egypt. He's going to go face-to-face with Pharaoh. He's got to make a connection with the children of God there who are in bondage in Egypt. So, you know, he he just... He's talking with God. He's communing with God. He's connecting with God. And then he asked God point blank, what's your name? When they ask me what your name is, you know, how do I answer? Listen to Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I came to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers and the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial to all generations. So Moses asked, who who do I tell him sent me? What's your name? He says, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God reveals his name to Moses so he can have a connection with his people. So, uh, you know, you need to know something about God's name and that God's name is holy. You know, the, the Jews have such a reverence for God's name, they don't even spell it out, even when they hyphenate it or they, they won't say it out loud. Uh, you know, sometimes we get so familiar with God that we forget to be reverent of his name. And we forget that God's name is holy. Exodus 20, uh, uh, verse 7, God specifically commands all 
of the people, whether Christian or not, non-Christian, not to take his name in vain. Think about that. God, God has given a commandment, you know, and many times people who don't know the Lord or have a relationship with the Lord will use the Lord's name in vain. How, how many of you hear the Lord's name in, used in vain all day long? It's tough. You know, if you work, like I came up working on construction sites and being around people and, you know, just it seems like in the workplace or wherever you are, people will take the Lord's name in vain. Now, God said not to do that. Why? Because his name is holy. Taking the Lord's name in vain is just so vulgar and disrespectful. Now, I realize they don't really know what they're saying when they say it. So we need to have mercy on them and not, you know, be judgmental. But people who know me, who are not Christians, they know not a lot of words bother me, but when they take the Lord's name in vain, then they know they've offended me. And that's the one thing that offends me. You say, why? Because it hurts my heart. Because, you know, his name is holy. And, and to use the name of God or the name of Jesus in vain, it really should have an impact on us if we have a close relationship with him. God specifically commands uh, people not to take his name in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now realize he's talking to his people here, yet, you know, this command stands uh, for everyone, and there is some guilt associated with those who know better who take the Lord's name in vain. So think about what was commanded there, uh, using the Lord's name in vain. I've heard Christians do it at times, and it boggles my mind that if you really had a relationship with him, would you, would you take his name in vain like that? In fact, the person who takes the Lord's name in vain in casual conversation or in anger uh, is showing and proving that they don't know God. So knowing God is going to allow us to have blessings and benefits to be set on high. But not knowing God is, you know, going to keep us from those. So God is the I am, but he's also called many other names. The psalmist uses four different names just in Psalm 91. First, he calls God the Most High. Then he refers to God as the Almighty. Then he calls God the Lord, and then he calls him my God. Now, I want you to see that just four times in one psalm, different names. Yes, he's the I Am, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there are many names for God. Now, notice each mention of God's name in the psalm shows a progressively deeper level of intimacy with him. Look, he starts off by calling him the Most High. He might as well have said, you know, the man upstairs. Have you heard people say that? Right? And that, you know, when people say stuff like that, you know, they, they know about God, but they don't know God. Then he calls him the Almighty. So now he attaches some of God's uh, character to his name. He, he's the Almighty. He's omniscient. He's all-powerful. Then he calls him the Lord. That's a little more intimate than the Most High or the Almighty. Are you getting this? And then finally, in Psalm 91, he calls him my God. That's really personal, amen? That's what we're shooting for. We don't want to know God as the man upstairs or the big guy or whatever people call him that don't know him. We want to know him as my God. And we should be working towards developing an intimacy with him and a track record with him and, uh, you know, a submission to him that allows us to call him my God. All of us should be working towards that goal. Now, John 14 8 through 10, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So the disciples have been walking with Jesus, watching miracles, 
you know, seeing all that he does. And Philip comes out and says to him, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus' answer in verse 9 is this. He said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has sent me, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say to me, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. So, see, it's knowing his name and knowing who he is and realizing that Jesus and the Father are one and having this connection. Philip and the rest of the disciples were always so unsure of who Jesus was until after the resurrection. And we've got to know him in his resurrection power so there's no doubt in our hearts who he is and what his name is and that he's our God. So knowing God starts with knowing his name, and the promised reward is that he will set us on high. Now, the first promise was deliverance, uh, and the second was had to do with positioning, setting us on high. And I, I thought about this a lot. There's a part of all of us that likes the heights. Now, if you're older, not so much. Do you know when you get older, sometimes people get afraid of heights? Come on, anybody? I don't move around on roofs like I used to, Ray, you know, when I was 20 years old. And I find myself, you know, climbing up on the roof. I was up there 35 feet, and all of a sudden I look down, and all of a sudden I turn into a koala bear, and I'm just hugging the roof, and I'm like, uh-oh. But when I was young, that was not a problem at all for me. And, you know, I remember when my children were small. When I was a little guy, my dad used to pick me up and put me on top of the refrigerator when we were in the Bronx. We had this old refrigerator. I don't know if you remember. He used to pick me up and put me in. It seemed like I was so high up there. And then he would step back a little bit, and I would jump, and he would catch me. When I, when I had my sons, they were little, I remember just grabbing them and just chucking them in the air so high. Wow! As hard as I could. You can ask him. And they would go so far up there, I could lean, check my watch, and boom, and then I would catch them. Now, I thought about that today. I started to get scared because I don't know how that would work out now since they're you know, about 200 pounds apiece. But, you know, and, and you know what their response was after I whipped them in the air as high as I could? Again, again, again in the ocean, just throwing them into the waves, loving it, spinning end over end, again. There's something about children that they like the heights. I remember climbing trees when I was a kid. Every, I mean, every time the car stopped, I'd jump out and find a tree to climb because I wanted to be up there and I wanted to see and I wanted to be in the heights. And you know what? I think God has put something in all of us that desires the heights, that desires the mountaintop. God put that in us because God inhabits the heights. God is in the heavens. God is high above the earth, amen? So what does it mean to be set on high? It means God himself has lifted us up out of the muck and mire of this world and brought us to a higher place in him. You know, sin is something that we get tangled in. God reaches down and he, he untangles us and he pulls us out of the mud. He dusts us off. He cleans us off. He calls us his own. We become a child of God. He lifts us up on high. What does it mean to be set on high? It means that God allows us to get a glimpse of things from his vantage point. Do you know, if all we know is an earthly perspective, we really don't know God. But the closer we get to God, the more he lifts us up and gives us a glimpse of what he sees. 
You know, God sees people differently than people see people. Some people look at people and write them off. You're never gonna be anything. You're a loser. You made bad decisions. You're this, you're that. People judge. But God looks down and he sees gems in the midst of the coal, amen. And he says, "I, I see diamonds in you. And he lifts us up. God allows us to see from his perspective. What else does it mean? It means God himself has placed us beyond the reach of the enemy's grasp for us. You know, when we're down in the dirt and we're down in the mud and we're surrounded by sin, we're an easy mark for the enemy. But when God lifts us up, he puts us in a place where the enemy can't touch us. Mount up on wings like eagles, amen. Turkeys are cool, but they don't fly so great. I don't want to be a turkey. I want to be an eagle. And God lifts up those who reverence his name, who know his name, who develop a relationship with him, who honor his name, who don't use his name in vain, and who take the time to really get to know who he is. So there's two promises out of the seven we covered here tonight. We're going to know God as deliverer, and we're going to see that he's going to set us on high. If we'll love him, and if we'll learn his name and develop intimacy with him. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I just thank you for Psalm 91. I thank you for this study. I thank you for all these principles that you're showing us. And the bottom line is, God, you're drawing us into deeper relationship with you because you love us and you've made us for relationship. So I pray for myself tonight and I pray for all my brothers and sisters, wherever we are in our relationship with you, if it's like the children of Israel at the bottom of the mountain and we know you at arm's length, would we get just a little closer? Father, if we know you like Moses so close, Moses had an intimate face-to-face relationship, and that's possible for us now because the veil's been torn in two. Father, there's always more of you that we could know, so help us to fall in love with you all over again and to, to, to push in and allow you to reveal yourself to us so we know the depths of the implication of your name. I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Be our deliverer. Be our deliverer, Lord. Allow us to see your deliverance in our lives. Allow us to love you with all of our hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can give him praise if you want.